This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our short summer break, and we're coming to you remotely from Dallas, Texas. This week, we review two simmering problems, the protests and food crisis in Venezuela, and seeking an end to the civil war in Colombia. Will minority voices be heard? But first, Chorzy Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Pedro Pablo Kaczynski took the presidential oath of office this week in Peru, becoming the country's oldest president ever. Kuzinski is 77 years old. The conservative economist set out goals in his inaugural address, including having Peru take a leadership role in Latin America. I want Peru to become a beacon of civilization in the Pacific region and South America and for all our neighbors to see us with admiration. Kuzinski backs the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP, a trade deal that includes a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim, including Peru, Chile, Mexico, and the United States. President Barack Obama has already thanked Kuzinski for his support of the deal. But the TPP faces a ratification fight in the U.S. Congress, and it could also get hung up in presidential politics in the U.S. Protests in Venezuela this week as electoral authorities again delayed a decision about a recall election. Opposition groups want President Nicolas Maduro recalled from his office. They have submitted petitions with more than a million signatures and verified those signatures through a complex process as they seek approval for the recall election. Electoral authorities have now put off any decision until next week. Venezuela is suffering through food shortages and soaring inflation. Meanwhile, reports from Venezuela parks employees say at least 50 animals have died in Venezuela zoos due to the food shortages. Officials for the zoo in Caracas, the country's capital, are trying to get lions and tigers to eat fruits and vegetables instead of meat. We'll have more on the crisis in Venezuela later on in this program. Colombia declared victory over the Zika virus inside its borders this week. Colombia's health authorities say their efforts at mosquito eradication and health monitoring have paid off. Since last September, more than 100,000 Colombians have contracted Zika, and the disease has caused birth defects in at least 20 newborns. The World Health Organization confirmed it started seeing declines in the infection in Colombia this spring. Colombian officials say they are still seeing hundreds of new cases each week, but the numbers are declining and they believe the disease will soon run its course. Brazil reports the most cases of Zika and the global epidemic is centered there. Four of the world's top golfers have pulled out of the Olympics citing concerns about Zika, but Olympic officials claim the golfers use the outbreak as an excuse to skip the games, where no prize money is at stake, only medals. More trouble for the Olympic flame in Brazil. Just a week before the Summer Olympics are set to begin in Rio, protesters in a suburb of Rio grabbed the Olympic torch from a runner and extinguished the flame. The incident kicked off a riot. Authorities called in members of the Brazilian military who dispersed the crowd with rubber bullets and tear gas. Brazilians are actively protesting against the Olympics. They are angry about a major recession, soaring crime rates, and that public employees in some parts of the country 
have not received paychecks in more than two months. Luckily for the Olympics organizers, they have several torches with the Olympic flame that has traveled from Greece. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Trumbull, Connecticut. Our listening group in Connecticut was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in Guatemala City and the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners in Connecticut and elsewhere around the globe. And now we return to Venezuela. As we heard earlier, electoral authorities in Venezuela continue stalling presidential recall efforts. President Nicolas Maduro has also often used the country's Supreme Court to block the new opposition-led National Assembly, the Venezuelan Congress. Some critics say presidential authority has extended so widely under Maduro that the country's democracy is breaking down. We asked Dan Hellinger of Webster University about Venezuela. Hellinger is the co-editor of Bolivarian Democracy in Venezuela, Participation, Politics, and Culture. He also writes for the website of the Center for Democracy in the Americas. This is the second part of our interview conducted at Webster University's campus, in Webster Groves, Missouri. Is there a problem with democracy in Venezuela? A problem with democracy might be a good way of putting it because there's a problem with democracy in the United States, right? So I can probably say that there isn't a country in the world. Now, I think the problems with democracy in Venezuela are pretty acute. I think they're pretty acute here too, frankly. Um, And they're less acute in some other places in the world. But I think the very fact that recently Maduro went, you know, he did, he went far enough to threaten with closure of the National Assembly to one or two people within the PSUV in the Assembly took it up like, yes, that's what we ought to do. And then he renounced it again. With the court, it's a little harder to make judgments here because the courts are, yeah, the courts have a lot. It's kind of dissimilar in the United States in the sense that um, uh, there's a, there are a lot of holdover appointments from previous administrations in the courts. They're very politicized, the courts in the United So, in a lot of ways, if you want to understand the court system in Venezuela, you can look at this one. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, but look, even what just happened recently in the Supreme Court, there were some counter decisions. And I think it is fair to say that you become suspicious when you actually don't see the, the courts coming down at all on the other side against the government. Certainly that is very suspicious. I think the courts are really going to get caught like the Electoral Council in the next couple months. But Maduro is politically weak. I think there are forces within the PSUV that wouldn't mind seeing Maduro lose because either because they're ambitious politicians, just as there are in the opposition, or because there are people that think the revolution's got off track and we need to get somebody more capable in the government. Wouldn't that propel this recall movement? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I, think, I think it would. I think there are people in the PSUV, I, they're probably divided three ways, um, between those who want Maduro to finish his term, those who want to see him recalled, but not until next year, when uh, the vice president, who seems who is a more capable and experienced pol- politician, would take over, um, and uh, and those who do, would like to see the recall happen pretty soon, so they could replace him sooner. You mentioned that Maduro inherited a 
cabinet filled with people from the military? Yeah, uh, re mostly retired. People who were Chavez's colleagues, a lot of them have been involved in the 2000, uh, excuse me, the 1992 coup attempt that Chavez led and were cashiered subsequently. I wonder how important is Maduro's relationship with the Venezuelan military in how he survives this recall and how his administration oh, goes forward. It's very important since even it since even the more moderate sectors in the MUD like Enrique Capriles who's the been the candidate in the last two presidential elections for the opposition have made thinly veiled calls for the military to overthrow. And um, it also accounts for why the, some parts of the opposition want to provoke violence. The more violence they can provoke, the more it puts the military and police forces in the position, of course, of responding to that violence. And one of the main things that got Chavez elected was people's abhorrence of the use of the military as, was as it was used by Carlos Andres Perez in 1989 and in the, by the government in the 90s to put down protests. So, which were violent yeah. and, and, and lethal. Well, let me, yeah, and let, also let me add, however, that a lot of what's what, one of the things that indicates the seriousness of the problem in Venezuela is that despite the government's charges that the opposition is behind them, pretty clearly a lot of the food riots, the breaking into supply centers, that sort of thing, have been, have been spontaneous. And even if there is some opposition figure that said, hey, let's go down and raid the warehouse, um, the willingness of people to follow them. Or her is something significant. So, so I, I don't want my, the, what I've just said a moment ago to be interpreted as saying that some of the uh, manifestations of violence and protest in Venezuela today are. Uh, what's interesting about it is they aren't called by the opposition. They're being called by people who are saying we're hungry in that warehouse. You're not distributing the food, or by the, or we wait online, and by the time we get there, there's nothing on the shelves anymore. That's what's causing a lot of the, the kinds of reports we're seeing in the press. But again, I want to emphasize, that indicates times are really hard in Venezuela. They're very serious. They could get worse. But let's not say that it's humanitarian crisis yet on the scale of the kinds of things we've seen in some other parts of the world. I, I, I'm wondering, since you mentioned gender there in, in your answer, mm -hmm. that this spontaneous response um, somewhat organized by women, by mothers, yeah, to make a run the, at the Colombian border. And the right. fact that hundreds of them overwhelmed the border guards, yeah, got to Colombia, yeah. did their shopping, guards let them come back with full bags of groceries. They organized themselves mm -hmm. uh, using a social media um, application. But this says something, and then Colombia right. and Venezuela talked and right. said, let's, let's let people across right. the border in an easier way. This sort of spontaneous reaction is sparking yeah. some change. Well, the reason why they closed the border in the first place had more to do with gasoline smuggling than anything. Um, yeah, the smuggling the other way because you can buy things in Colombia and then sell them in Venezuela, uh, but not. But gasoline was the thing, and that's uh, you know that's that's going to change now. Gasoline prices are going up, but yeah, I mean that's that that'd be fantastic. I think as a model, um, if 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 you really saw it. What, what I'm afraid of is the opposition is going to begin to say, hey, that worked, let's organize, and begins to look a little bit like what happened to Chile in the Allende years, where you had wealthier middle-class women banging pots in the street and complaining, right? That's different. 
Now, if what it is are women organizing and the grassroots to say there's a crisis of hunger, the military or the government is not doing very well in alleviating it, we're taking these things into our own hand, and this is what we're going to do about it, I think that could be a very positive thing, especially if it's aimed at forcing the opposition and the government to both come to their senses and talk to one another and look, look for a way to avoid this becoming a humanitarian crisis and avoid this becoming even more polarized politically. When we talk about Venezuela, what haven't we covered in our discussion that you think we should consider? I think we've touched on most everything that's important in the immediate crisis. There's probably somebody out there that knows as much or more about Venezuela than I do that's saying, you missed that. But I want to just come back briefly and emphasize um, in the longer run the importance of rethinking the oil question in Venezuela. And I think the main analysis continues to be, well, the, this all this happened because Venezuela has failed to sow the oil. Ever since the 1920s, people in Venezuela, the Venezuelans have been said, well, we've got to take the oil money, the oil will run out these day, this someday, and we're going to have to then diversify the economy. You know, you can diversify the economy, but it has to happen more organically. There's a big controversy about whether extractive industries can ever really lead to development. You know, that that's well, goes well beyond, maybe we can do another show on that someday. Uh, but, I think the, but I think in the case of Venezuela, I guess I'll stake my opinion and say oil is too important not to manage it. It has to be managed responsibly, environmentally. I'm sounding like a spokesperson for Exxon now, and I, 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 I'm horrifying myself in that respect. But I do think if you look at Venezuela's economy, you've got to say, look, we've got to manage the economy. We've got to decide what kind of oil industry we want to have. We have to tell ourselves, yeah, we're always going to be importing. What are we going to import? And how can we balance this? Is it going to, is it, does it make sense, as Venezuela's been doing for almost 100 years now, does it make sense to basically say, ah, we get dollars from the external market, we'll take those dollars and we'll sell them at a subsidized rate to capitalist businessmen and let them import so they can sell to other people. Venezuela is, bottom line, still a capitalist country. It's a capitalist country that depends upon an oil industry to generate cheap dollars, and that means that Venezuelans are always importing things with cheap dollars. That model has to really be seriously examined, um, and, and I know that there's a lot of issues regarding indigenous rights, respect for nature, the, the buen vivir, the good life, what it is, but we've got to sort of at least reassess how to build a prosperous economy around an extractive, export-oriented economy and rethink things. Thanks so much. Our guest today, Dan Hellinger of Webster University and the Center for Democracy in the Americas. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Thank Pulse. you. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for doing this, Rick. It's a great, it's a, it's a great service. Coming up, searching for that elusive peace in Colombia. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth Abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Colombia's civil war has stretched on for more than 52 years, and Colombia's government is nearing a peace deal 
with one of the rebel groups fighting that war, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC. But Colombia's minority groups have often been ignored during the peace process. We're talking about indigenous tribes and Afro-Colombians, groups often forgotten in Colombia's rural areas and groups that make up a big percentage of Colombia's 6 million internal refugees. We asked Jimena Sanchez to assess minority participation in Colombia's peace process. Sanchez is with the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. She joined us via long-distance line from Washington, D.C. Here's the second part of our discussion. First, uh, let's step back and just talk a bit about what has been the inclusion of Afro-Colombians or lack of inclusion of Afro-Colombians and indigenous in this peace process. Um, Eighteen months ago, the nine major networks of Afro-Colombian groups at the national and regional level banded together and formed something called the Afro-Colombian Peace Council. This is the most unified grouping of Afro-Colombians in the history of Colombia, and includes all of the major sectors, religious, trade unionists, women, youth, displaced, and territorial authorities. And they banded together, basically, because they realized that in Havana, there were negotiations taking place on issues like um, agrarian reform, drugs, and political participation, all which affected their communities in a manner that is very different from others in the country. On the one hand, indigenous and Afro-Colombians are disproportionately affected by the conflict. They make up more than 30% of the displaced. They make up almost all of the newly displaced in the past five years. Um, And they also are in a situation, in the case of the indigenous, where certain distinct ethnic groupings are disappearing because they have so few uh, members left due to the combination of violence and displacement and environmental damage. In the case of Afro-Colombians, they make up the worst socioeconomic indicators in the country, um, and they continue to live in many of the areas where you don't have potable water, you don't have roads, and you don't have any real basic services. So in the case of Afro-Colombian and indigenous, we see that malnutrition actually leads to death. And in the region of La Guajira, which is an indigenous Wayu area, you've had at least 30 children die in the past year from malnutrition, um, from lack of access to water. So for them, this is uh, an accord that obviously will affect them, but that they wanted to guarantee includes protection of their collective land rights. Um, They started advocating for this, and the Colombian government has done absolutely everything to stop it from happening. It's only in the interest of the Colombian government and of the FARC to figure this out, because a lot of these areas where they will be demobilizing of the 32 that I mentioned are Afro-Colombian and indigenous areas. We also see that some of the encampments, four of the eight encampments that are going to be um, put forward, which is where the FARC will concentrate, are in Afro-Colombian and indigenous areas. So in order to basically reconcile these folks with their communities, also guarantee that these folks in those areas are able to transition and what have you, um, as we go towards the future, you need to have that relationship. That relationship not just in um, words and just adding, you know, Afro-Indigenous, but an actual 
communication, dialogue, and joint plan of how to implement these accords. You mentioned earlier that these communities are affected by environmental damage that is part of the war landscape. Uh, Can you be more specific with us about some instances of this? Yes. There are multiple different forms of environmental damage. The biggest and most prominent one are the landmines. Colombia is one of the most heavily landmined countries in the world. And um, unfortunately, a lot of those mines were placed by the FARC, and so they're artisanal mines which makes it even more problematic for detection and uh, more likely to migrate um, due to temperature and climate changes and harder to uh, basically demine. So that's one effect that has had a tremendous impact on these communities because there are areas that have been cordoned off where um, they can't basically cultivate their basic foods for fear of um, accidents. The other way is that the illegal armed groups, in particular the FARC, but also paramilitaries, um, have invested a lot of their um, gains from the drug trade in building an illegal economy in the gold industry. You have illegal gold mining taking place throughout the country and in a lot of Afro-Colombian and indigenous areas. Because it is happening unregulated, with no environmental standards, and uh, basically with the strongest man for himself and um, protection of these groups, you see that a lot of hazardous and toxic materials have been utilized that are poisoning the waterways for indigenous and Afro-Columbians, as well as other rural campesinos, with mercury, with cyanide. Um, and that has been a huge, huge problem that um, hopefully with the end of the conflict with the FARC can be something that can actually be addressed. It's been very difficult to address this problem, um, one, because there's been a lot of corruption of the um, local authorities that have permitted this to take place. Um, and then secondly, because these areas have been areas of combat operations, the security situation has made it even harder to be able to address these problems. So hopefully with the end of the formal conflict, um, Colombia can start looking at these areas. Um, the Colombian government is very much aware that this is, this is an issue and a problem that they need to properly address. There have been efforts to uh, basically try to define exactly what artisanal mining is, what small-scale mining is, what large-scale mining is, and to have um, regularization of mining. There's a lot of confusion of in these different forms of mining, um, but um, they're very much aware that this, this is going to be one of the big um, issues that they need to address in the future. I, I find it very interesting that you characterize these discussions with Afro-Colombian groups and indigenous groups as happening more or less at the tail end of the peace process, that, that there's already a signing of a ceasefire agreement, and um, plans for demobilization. Uh, one would think that the FARC, the rebels, that represented themselves as, as, as fighting for campesinos and other groups that, that weren't um, getting their voice into the Colombian system, that they might have included these groups in, in the negotiations, but, but not so? No, not so. 
Stuff Fark um, is basically a Marxist-Leninist organization that it's based, um, and basically has an ideology that's based on class. Um, the FARC has never accepted the autonomy of Afro-Colombian and indigenous people to have basically their own culture, their own way of life, and their own political representation. This is a big issue. Um, for example, in 2002, the FARC was engaged in a massacre that led to almost 79 Afro-Colombians being burned alive in a church in Bohaya. Um, last year, there was a reconciliation ceremony as part of the peace process between the FARC and those victims are of that uh, massacre, as in the victims' families and, and, and hundreds that were displaced. Um, one thing that was very notable at that ceremony was the fact that the FARC was talking about how they felt so terrible, and they even cried, that they were hurting their own people, but that everyone who was present there did not feel that they were their people. Um, and so that's something that I think for years, you know, the FARC has controlled lots of areas with coercion, with pressure, with basically military force and fear. It's going to be very interesting to see whether they can win the hearts and minds of all of these folks in these areas that they say they represent. Um, they do represent some campesino communities, and they do um, highlight some of the bigger problems in the country that are structurally uh, it's a structurally politically exclusive and economically exclusive and maldistributed uh, economically, um, as in the riches this country. However, um, with the Afro-Colombian indigenous, we've seen that there's never been an understanding between um, these groups. And that's been a big problem. In recent years, in the past five years, there's been an upkeep, uptake of killings of Afro-Colombian leaders, death threats of Afro-Colombian leaders, and attacks. Um, against um, these Afro-Colombians and indigenous by the FARC, precisely because of, of the reasons that I mentioned, um, that they don't see things the same way. What haven't we covered that you think is important to well, consider? the United States. <laughs> the United States um, basically is going to be the number one donor to the Colombia peace process. Since 1999, the U.S. has given more than $10 billion, mostly in military and security assistance to Colombia. And as of February, uh, President Obama announced that the next phase of funding is going to be a Paz Colombia, Peace Colombia plan. However, what he asked for in terms of funding was $450 million, which is far below what the United States has given, mostly in the bipartisan manner, all of these years for the war. We think that that's a really big mistake. Um, signing a peace accord and actually implementing it are two huge, very different things. Colombia has been in conflict for decades. A lot of these situations are protracted, structural, and long-standing issues that are not going to be resolved just by the signing of a piece of paper. They need a lot of support, especially financial support to put the whole infrastructure of these um, accords in place, then to guarantee that civil society independently monitors and pushes these accords to become a reality, um, making sure that these protection systems that have been announced actually work, that's going to take a lot of money. And what we're seeing is with 
the crisis of refugees in Europe as well as attention paid to other parts of the world and less so to Latin America, that most of the European funding um, has been going down. The trend has been that it's going down and that the U.S. is basically the um, country that's going to be the one financing most of this. Thank you so much. Imana Sanchez of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, joining us via long distance from Washington, D.C. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Pulse. Thank you. That concludes our program recorded on location in Dallas. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse.com at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Production assistant, Chorsey Martin, and technical director, Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Las Rocas Productions.